Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bccweb.com. Um, Let's just pray before we move into this part two of this great uh, new series we're in. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have come into this world. Lord, you came into this world with the objective of bringing life to humanity. Lord, of taking us out of a place where we were trapped, where humanity was stuck. Uh, Lord, lost in sin. And and Lord, you've you've given humanity and people, uh, in particular, individuals, Lord, an opportunity to change their lives forever. And Lord Jesus, this morning as we tackle this, this topic, it's just fantastic to, to talk about having a better life. And I pray, Lord, that, that the words this morning will just inspire each one of us and God, that you would speak to us through, through the message today. In Jesus' name, amen. So really excited and inspired by this, this topic. Um, if you want a better life, there's no better place to go than Jesus Christ. Um, but, you know, decision-making is a difficult one. This, this morning, this second, uh, second in the series, I've titled Uncomfortable Decisions. Uncomfortable Decisions. You know, last week we looked at the first part of this whole uh, study over the next few weeks. And uh, we, we saw that there were some really big errors that people make in life by looking at the life of a man called Elimelech and his wife Naomi in the book of Ruth, and, and some of his, his uh, immediate decisions because of uh, particular needs in his life, particular needs in Elimelech's life, led him to making bad decisions. And, uh, and we are driven so often to make decisions because we need to make decisions, uh, but we can make them and we can go in the completely wrong direction. We can find ourselves... Um, you know, in a sort of God presence one minute and the next minute we're out in no man's land. In fact, we're in a terrible place. Why? Because our decision making is flawed. And uh, we started this series by looking at uh, what it takes to, to move away from, um, well, to understand that and to know how we are going to move forward um, in this whole idea of having a better life. So we're going to be looking this morning at uncomfortable decisions and using uh, this book of Ruth as a way forward to understand that. Uh, what decisions are the most difficult? Let me just ask you that. What are the most dis- difficult decisions you have to make? How do you know if a decision is difficult? How do you know when a, a decision you've got to make is a difficult one? They're the ones that you tend to put off, aren't they? They're the ones you tend to defer. I know that when uh, you're, you, like me, are probably very, very busy, and busy lives, you know, you squeeze things out of your life when you're busy. But when it comes to making decisions, you always end up doing the most difficult decisions last, don't you? You know, if you've got a list of things to do, you always pick the things you love doing or the things that you know you can, the things that give you pleasure, right? The decisions where there's not a lot of pleasure attached to it are typically the most difficult decisions. And, uh, and they tend to fall down the list. And, and if you are like me and you have a running list every day of things to do, you've got to force yourselves to, to tackle those difficult things um, otherwise, they just get pushed down. If you don't watch it, you can have a decision that you should have made five years ago actually still on your, still on your desk. I mean, I've got <laughs> some things I've got to make decisions about that are still sitting there maybe a year later. That's, that's the reality of life. Sometimes 
decisions are difficult and you don't want to be faced with those. But we're going to look at um, how God wants to partner with us in, in tackling uncomfortable decisions this morning. And uh, we looked at Elimelech, as I say, and Naomi and Ruth one last week. Adam and I were talking in the office, actually, on Thursday. Uh, we were chewing over this series. Um, Adam will be preaching and Deborah will be preaching through the series. Uh, and they'll bring their own perspectives on this fantastic topic. Um, but we were looking at what the, the verse right before the book of Ruth, right before, and it's in Judges. And remember we said that, that the book of Ruth was was really um, written around the time of the Judges of 1100 BC. It's a historical book. It's one of the, the books in the Old Testament, which is an account, a sort of narrative of history and reality and a story. Uh, the Old Testament books, as you know, there are 39 of them. And in those books, they're, they're books of history and prophecy and poetry. And Ruth sits in that kind of history uh, and personal account narrative. Um, and we understand that it's, it's the real life experience of real people. And so when we look at the book of Ruth, it, even though it's way back in the Old Testament, we can pull parallels in our own lives because it's about real people. It's about real people in real situations. But the verse before Ruth is Judges 21, 25. And it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But Adam mentioned it to me. He said, isn't that interesting that everyone did what was, they felt was right in their own eyes? And society is like that these days. It's exactly how society is today. People do what they think is right in their own eyes. You try and defend faith or Christianity and what you believe, you'll have plenty of opposition to that. You will. And, uh, you know, as believers, our, part of our responsibility is to equip ourselves with good understanding of what the Word of God says. Because um, the Word of God cuts through conversation sometimes. It cuts through the uncertainties of life. It cuts through where you can't necessarily argue, but God will speak through His Word. It cuts through... But life is full of people who are, are, are doing things that feels good in their own sight. And if you look, just watch TV after about nine o'clock, you'll realise that there is an awful lot of stuff going on that, that isn't that helpful for us. So just recapping on what happened in, in the first week in this series. Um, th- this guy, Elimelech, a husband with a wife, Naomi, and two sons, they go off to Moab. And we pictured Moab as almost like a living potential hell, really. It looked like a place of prosperity, but in fact it was a place where, where below the surface, in fact, in society, uh, there was a, a lot of problems. There were a lot of things going wrong. And, um, and actually, Elimelech decided to take his family out of a place where God had identified as his promised land. So they took, they took his family out of what could have been a place of promise into a place where actually um, the people of Moab lived. And we talked about the history. And if you didn't hear the message last week, I encourage you to, to go to iTunes and download that and play that podcast. Um, it's, it was very, very interesting. It's an area that um, I've not looked at before. And just looking at this series, it was great to explore um, how, how people get caught out by making a decision with the wrong outcome. So anyway, the family moved to Moab. Uh, in fact, um, it says in 2 Kings 3.27, just as an aside, there was a king in Moab. This is later in the time of the kings. And it said King Misha sacrificed his own son by fire and, uh, to, to one of the gods of the Moabites. That was a nation where even the king would sacrifice his own family. Literally, physically, uh, a burnt offering it talks about in kings. Um, so that's the nature of, of the society in, uh, in Moab that Elimelech and Naomi took their sons. 
it's hardly surprising there wasn't God's blessing on their lives when as a chosen people, the Israelites, God said, go to the promised land. He didn't say, go do an alternative thing without my instruction. And that's what happened. Elimelech took it upon himself that it was okay to make a decision and go somewhere else just because of famine. Now you might say, well, famine's a pretty good driver to take yourself out of a place of pain. And, but God is the provider of everything. And when we put ourselves right with God, God provides, and the people knew that. Elimelech would have known that. The answer to the famine was not to run off to a, a place of sin. The answer to famine was to run to God repentant. It was to go to God humble, to go to God and asking God to provide, which is what God always, always does. At the worst point in their lives, um, Ruth, uh, and Naomi, Ruth being one of the daughters-in-law of Naomi, we, we know from the story from last week that um, Elimelech died, and then the two sons died, leaving two daughters-in-law of Naomi. The sons had died without children, and that all speaks to a lack of blessing, or the fact that God's blessing was not on their lives. It's not to say that those who don't have children and want them, that God has taken their hands off you, by the way. This is just a parallel in Old Testament practice. This is one of the indicators of God's presence in people, people's lives. In Ruth 1 verse 6 in the ESV, I normally use the New Living, but in the ESV it says, she had heard in the fields of Moab, she being Naomi, had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now this is interesting, keep that verse up there for a while. She had heard in the fields of Moab. Naomi was working hard without a husband and without her sons. She's now working hard. She's probably in her 50s. Now, in the Near East at that point in time in history, to be that old and to be alive was probably a relatively rare thing because of disease and all sorts of other stuff and, and just life expectancy. She was, she was not a spring chicken anymore um, by any accounts. She was, um, and she's working hard. She's in the fields and she heard. And what I would say to you today is that, that here... Um, you may be working really hard. You may be in a place of really tough decision-making and you're working hard. But while she was in the fields of Moab, the Lord, she heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. It's extraordinary. That word visited, <coughs> pakad in Hebrew, it's a very, very interesting word. It's a military word. It's, it's fascinating behind it. So often when we look at things in English, it doesn't, you don't get the full sense of what God is saying through his word, but when you look back at the original language, you can see it. These texts were originally written in Hebrew, and it means that there's been an intervention. God visited, he intervened. It actually means it's, a, it's used in military context. So if God visits, it means he's drawing some order out of chaos. He's drawing some planning together. Um, he's starting to assemble, to count to muster and to prepare for battle. So when you read, God, well in this case, God visited, she'd heard God visited his people. She would have understood that being a military term. She realised that God was not only just making himself available, he was actually starting to count, he was starting to assemble, he was starting to prepare, he was starting to muster his people. And what's more, she's, it says in that verse, that God is, she understood that God was identifying with his people. God was taking account. So what God will do is in your t time of crisis, 
when you feel like you're out in the wilderness, God will make you aware that he is going to start mustering, counting, preparing for battle. You may not feel like a warrior. You may not feel like someone who's ready to fight right now. But God will give you information that he's drawing you into what he's about to do. And that's what was going on here. This is what Ruth had heard. She, uh, sorry, Naomi had heard. She'd realised that God is re-identifying himself with his people and that um, he has given them food. Well, the irony is that we know that the word Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. So God is about to, or is giving bread once again back in the town of Bethlehem where she was from. And when she understood that, because she understood the Hebrew, she understood the implications of the language that's being used in this text, she understood it. She knew, she understood that God was starting to muster his people. And therefore she had a compelling thought to make. Eventually Ruth 1 verse 7 says, With her two daughters-in-law she set out from the place where she'd been living and they took the road which would lead them back to Judah. They took the road. So, these, so you've got Naomi, you've got Ruth, and you've got the other daughter-in-law, Orpah. So you've got these three women who are setting off on this journey back to Bethlehem. And um, it's extraordinary. Uh, let's pick it up now in Ruth 1, 8 to 18. We'll just read the whole text and then we'll start to open it up. Verse 8 says, But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes. And may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with security, with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. Then verse 10, No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. Then verse 11, But Naomi replied, Why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons? who could grow up to be your husbands. No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And if, even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far better for me, uh, things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go on with her, she said nothing more. Now, that, those few verses, where you go, I will go, are the absolutely the, the best known verses in this whole book of, book of Ruth. Uh, we will get on to that in a minute, but I don't want us to be consumed with those few verses just for a minute. I want to go back and look at what was going on here and the uncomfortable decision-making that had to take place. And my first point is this. Um, they had to confront reality. They had to confront reality. And if they confronted reality, it required a radical rethink. By confronting reality, it calls for a radical rethink. And that may be where you are today. Are you confronting the reality of the situation you're in? Are you confronting what really is going on? Are you really seeing what's happening in your world? Are you really 
taking on board what's going on. And if you are, then it's time for a radical rethink. Now, the great thing here is God is the God of hope. God is the God of promise. God is the God who comes into the mess. God is the God who delivers people from terrible situations. And today, you may have a real mess around you, or you may have some very big challenges, or you may be running a business, or you may be, you may be in a turbulent home life situation, or you may be at college and, and there's some pressure on you. Um, it, but we've got to confront what's really going on. We've got to confront reality and start a radical rethink. Why? Because God is starting to speak into it. Maybe the reason you're here today is because God has whispered to you through somebody else, come along, get involved, understand. Why? Because God is about to start you on a journey that's going to take you somewhere that either you don't know about or that he knows about and you need to understand what that is. So there's, a, there's this need to confront our reality. In Ruth 1.11 it says that Naomi replied, why should I go on? Why, why should you go on with me? Naomi is, is, is perplexed about these daughters, why they should choose to go on with her. Na- Naomi is already confronting reality, but it's quite interesting. If we go and unpick some of the verses that we read a few minutes ago, when Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, go back, return, go back, it means return. So they were already on the journey towards where God was. They were already on a journey to be reconciled with God. These people were not, well, it was only Naomi who had a history or tradition to understand who who God was. Naomi had that, Ruth and Orpah didn't. They had no working experience of the God of the Israelites. And it's extraordinary here, I love this, that Naomi, who had been separated from her people for well over ten years, we know that because the the sons were married for ten years uh, before they died, she, she, she was, she'd been separated from her people for a long period of time. But even in her separated state, these daughters-in-law had already started to cling to her. And you may feel that you're a bit out in the cold or a bit too far away from God. You're further away from God than you really want to be. But there'll be people in your world who'll start to attach themselves to you because God is speaking through your situation. As you start to respond to what God's doing, as you confront the reality of who you are and where you are, whether it's good or challenging, others will see that in your life and it will force them to make decisions about who God is. It's extraordinary. You don't even have to be an evangelist for people to start to see that God is starting to tackle things in your life. It's extraordinary. So these daughters-in-law are presented with um, a challenge. Um, What is interesting, if we just unpick some of the scriptures that we read, it's, Naomi said, go back, return, they're already on the journey, go back to your mother's homes. What a strange comment. In Near Eastern society, it's very rare to describe homes as your mother's homes because the father, it's patriarchal, so fathers ran the homes. And in Hebrew, Betem means the mother's home. The mother's home. It's a rare Old Testament expression. It's only used three times in the whole Old Testament. That expression, go to your mother's homes. And what does it mean? It actually suggests to the girls, these daughters-in-law, that they would go to a place of intimacy where they would get married, they'd be released to be married, that they would have, it implies the tenderness of going home. She was effectively saying, if you stay with me, there's going to be, it's not going to be an easy ride. It's going to be very, very difficult. 
but go to your mother's home. In other words, she's saying go back to where it's tender, where it's gentle, where, it's, where there's an opportunity for you to find love again. That's what she was saying. Um, and as she goes on, and she says, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness. That's extraordinary. She uses the word Lord, Yahweh. Now, do you get the significance of what Naomi's doing now? She's using the language of God the Creator to these girls. She's brought the word Yahweh in. She's brought the word Yahweh. May the Lord, Yahweh, the Eternal One, the God of the Israelites, reward you for your... Hang on a second. We're talking about Moabites here. God wasn't in the habit of rewarding Moabites. So why would she be saying, may God reward you? May, may God bless you? May, may Yahweh... So she's, she's in a society that's got Molech and Chemosh and other names for, for gods that destroy people. And she's saying, may the God who is the creator God, Yahweh, the one true God, bless you in that and go home. <laughs> God is speaking through her and she's using God's language to them and then it's making sense. Anyway, it, it goes on. May the Lord Yahweh bless you with the security of another man. Hang on, she's trying to send them back to Moab so that Yahweh will bless her, or bless them, in a land where there are false gods, where there are demonic presences. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. So God is working through this situation. Naomi is basically in a, in a very unstable situation. One minute she knows that God, Yahweh, is the source of all promise and truth and blessing, but she's saying to the girls, go back to to Chemosh and Molech, the gods that destroy life. It doesn't make sense. Why would she do it? Because she was in, a, in turmoil herself. She was in turmoil. She was having to confront reality. And the two realities are happening in front of her. She's got one foot in one camp and another foot in the other camp. She's, she's, a, she's got a feet in both camps. So she's confronting reality and needs a radical rethink. And then in verse 13, Ruth of Ruth it says things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me and what do we do when we're in a tough spot we either blame God or we blame ourselves or we blame both and she says you know God God's got it in for me God's but yet at the same time she's saying may Yahweh the God who creates bless your lives why because because she knows in her heart of hearts that's what God's going to do and yet she's not moved herself out of that sense of I have failed and God's judging me harshly for it. Why? Because she knew that God in his righteousness, in his righteousness will not tolerate certain things. And sometimes even today in, in, the, in the New Testament and, and in life as believers, we make grace an excuse to do too much. But she understood that God's righteousness was a very, very severe thing. She understood it. She understood the righteousness of God. She understood that God doesn't tolerate sin. God will not ignore things that are wrong. But we also understand in the New Testament we have got the grace and the love of Jesus Christ that, that covers the sin and the things we do wrong. But So she's in this turmoil space of these two things going off. And uh, you know, I watched TV a little while ago. I saw a program about Elvis. Did anyone see a program about Elvis and, and Gracelands? And, and there was a guy interviewed, and I only saw it just for a few moments. But he said, publicity has nothing to do with truth. It's all about creating an image that sells. And, um, and we know that Elvis's life was very much managed for him. And they created an image of what, what they wanted to produce out of Elvis. He was a good-looking guy, good singer. But they, he was, his life was managed 
to create an image and they, they wouldn't allow photographers to get too close to him. They wanted everything to be staged. Um, why? Because, because they wanted to prepare a perfect image of, of what life could be. Or, you know, you, you, you become a fan of Elvis and, and this is what you get. But actually, there was a lot of other stuff messed up in Elvis's life. There was an awful lot went wrong. I think he died at the age of 42 with multiple narcotics inside his system. Tragedy, one of the most famous men on the planet, and yet it was an image that had been created. And so often we're, we're, we are conformed to an image or a social kind of perfection that isn't real. It's not real. Publicity has nothing to do with truth. It's all about creating an image that sells. Well, when we confront reality, we have to have a radical rethink because it's our lives that are going to get chewed up and spat, spat out if we, if we don't confront it. But God gives us a way forward. Psalm uh, 113 verse 9 says, He gives the childless, the barren woman, a family, making her a happy mother. Praise the Lord. Proverbs 3.13, New Living Translation says, Joyful is the person who finds wisdom, the one who gains understanding. You will move yourself into a better position as you trust God. It's going to happen. It's that confidence to trust God, to have this confronting of reality and a radical rethink. It's interesting. Um, It means that there has to be a change, there has to be a step in a new direction. And we know that when someone gives their life to Christ, they move from going in one direction to refocusing their life and following God through Jesus Christ. They follow Jesus. It's a change of direction. And it's exactly what was going on here with Naomi and the two girls. They're confronted with a change of direction. And that change of direction confronts us daily. Um, I was looking at happiness as a topic. It came up in the office last year. Remember, Anne? We talked about happiness. But, you know, the Bible talks about joy and happiness. And, and scriptures talk about, you know, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And I, I thought I'd just look at this. And there was some research done. Uh, it says that 50% of people, are, their happiness comes from just who they are. Their sort of genetic makeup. Some people are more happy than others. But most of your happiness factor, if you like, comes from how you're made. And, and 50% of what makes you happy is just who you are and your satisfaction with life and who you, and who you are. Um, 10% of your happiness is linked to your circumstances. Only 10%. Your age, your race, your gender, your personal history and wealth. Only 10%, and this is research that's been done. Um, research indicates that only 10% of your happiness comes from those circumstances that you are in. But 40% of an individual's happiness seems to be derived from intentional activity. So as you change direction, as you have a radical rethink, if your life is frustrating and you're in a place where it's not good and there's no joy, you've lost your joy, you've lost your happiness, then as you get on with making a radical rethink and you move, God will restore your joy as you do it. In fact, there's there's an indication that Actually, having things like wealth and possessions and having stuff doesn't make you happy, in other words. It's only 10% of the mix that makes you happy. And in fact, in fact, research by another chap called Dan Gilbert from Harvard, professor, um, indicates that actually a lot of people don't even really fully understand what makes them happy. It's extraordinary, isn't it? If you, if you say to someone you know uh, what makes you happy, they would probably struggle to tell you. But there's something about how God has made us that as we move forward as we radically rethink, as we change direction, as we take intentional decisions, the thing that God has built in our lives to produce joy 
starts to work as we move towards him. So the first point, confront reality and have a radical rethink. The second one is making difficult choices. When you do them, choose carefully. Ruth 1.14, it says that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. So Orpah decided to leave, but Ruth decided to stay. Interesting, isn't it? These two women making two choices completely opposite to each other. We don't know what happened to Orpah. We don't know what happened to her, but we do know what happened to Ruth. And we'll find out more about that as we go forward in the series. But um, the two daughters made opposite decisions. Opposite decisions. And they were difficult decisions. Um, Psalm 119, one, uh, verses 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Let's keep that verse up there. What is a lamp to my feet? What does that mean? I went back and looked it up in terms of the Hebrew. And it implies, lamp to your feet implies it illuminates the steps you take. God's word illuminates the steps we take, the actual physical steps we take. God's word will illuminate where you put your feet. God's word will give you wisdom about where to step. Where not to step is probably more important. In fact, as you walk often, you're looking for what not to step on. And the Word of God helps us, it illuminates what not to step on and what not to step into. That's what God's Word does. But it does more than that. It's not just a lamp to my feet, it's light to my path. And what's light to my path? The picture is like sunlight. It's the bigger picture. God's Word is not only the the detail of the steps, it's the bigger picture. So you see the path in relation to to the horizon. You see the path into, in relation to the other things you're walking towards. The sun shines and it gives light so you can see. Who's ever driven at night time when it's really, really dark and there's no moon? It's very, very difficult to see if you're driving. And if you wear glasses, and occasionally I have to these days, um, it's even less easy to see when you're driving, certainly at speed. And we came back from, from the West Country just after New Year and coming back late at night, uh, in fact, it wasn't late at night, it felt late at night, but there was very little moon out, and it was windy, and it was raining, very, very unsettling. It's not easy to see, and even if you have high beam, it's, it's challenging. But as soon as you get your perspective reset, because you can see the horizon, it's a whole lot easier, isn't it? Driving is far less stressful when you can see what's around you. And that's what God's Word do- does. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So it's not only the path, but it's the path in perspective with the other things around you. So God's Word does that. So when we have confronted reality, we're looking at a radical rethink, we then have to make the difficult choices and we need to choose carefully. But God's Word will help us to do it. If we don't get into God's Word, then we'll be floundering around which route to go sometimes. You may be faced with very, very big decisions right now, but God's Word will give you an insight about what to do there. And, uh, you know, the Word of God... I'm somewhat cautious about bringing this up this morning, but these two daughters-in-law, one went with Naomi and one didn't. One decided to return to her family and one decided to make Naomi's family her new family. And the Bible talks about being very careful with families because families can have a very, very bad influence on us. Now, the Word of God fully supports families. Don't get me wrong here. The Word of God... Is, you know, God loves families. He loves mum and dad and the kids. That's what they're a blessing to us from the Lord. But in Matthew 12, 48 to 50, it says that Jesus 
had to reset his priorities. And his sometimes family can be a big problem for you. Jesus asked, if you can pull this, yeah, there it is. Jesus asked, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mother, my, my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's those who do God's will. And sometimes um, families can put you under a lot of pressure to turn away from God or just by the very nature of what they're doing and how they operate. There will be times where you may be in a family situation where, where actually your family is putting you under pressure not to do the will of God. They don't even realise it. They want you to do what they want you to do. But you need to be strong because um, family decision making is very, very important. Your family is probably the biggest influencer in your life for good or for bad. You will never forget what your family have done. You'll never forget what your father did. You'll never forget what your mother did. You'll never forget those things. It's sort of rooted in you. But sometimes we have to say, look, enough is enough. I've got to do what God says in situations. I've got to take responsibility for myself. I can't allow family issues to be the thing that dictates my future. It can't. So making difficult decisions, you've got to see where God is in a situation, not what your family is saying to you to do in a situation. You need to know what God is saying. And uh, in this case, um, why is that? Because family issues are often temporary. They're, they're circumstantial. They're based on, on um, what is going to happen this week, next week, this year. But God's plan is based on the rest of your life and eternity. God's plan is way bigger than your family. And it's not that God doesn't love your family. It's just that God wants you to follow God's plan and maybe that will influence your family. In this case, these two uh, daughters-in-law separated. So this week with the prayer and fasting, it's a huge opportunity for us to set down some of these big decision-making areas with care. What is God saying? Be ruthless in your thinking about what is it that God is saying to me? When is enough enough in situations? When is enough enough? Um, we need to bring these things to God and say, God, where are you leading me to? What is it you're showing me that I need to be responsible for? Um, life isn't about waiting for the storms to pass. It's about dancing in the rain. I saw that on a poster. It's not waiting for the storms to pass. It's about dancing in the rain. A bit flippant maybe, but, but it's interesting. I think when we've got confidence and trust in God, then actually even storms can be a place of pleasure. Why? Because God is with us. You know, um, it's just fascinating what God does. You know, Martin, you don't mind me saying this, do you, Martin? You don't know what I'm going to say. But Martin and Vlad uh, are about to go over, over to Macedonia for a, two or three days uh, at the end of this month. They've been invited by Jordan and Vesna, uh, who, who might actually be listening to this podcast in, in due course. So greetings, Jordan and Vesna, um, in Macedonia. But we've been tracking that couple, good friends of ours, for the last three or four years, allowing God to speak to us. We've had multiple teams go to Macedonia. And this year... Changes are happening for the better. Jordan and Vesna are having another child. That'll be the second one. And uh, we're really excited about that. It's going to affect the timing of any mission trip this year to Macedonia. But it's exciting that Martin and Vlad have been invited out and they're going to be involved in giving away 350 parcels and gifts that have been raised through another charity. But at the school, it's all going to take place at the school that God opened the door for us last, last Easter or last April. It's extraordinary, and where we went with the team in, in September, October time. And they'll be there giving out in a new town, in a town new to us, um, gifts to the community in a school where God opened the door. How does this happen? Because when we make good choices, we make difficult decisions, God 
starts to bless them and we start to see blessing on blessing. What could happen this year? We don't know. But God is, has been multiplying and opening these things up. My third key point on this, we confront reality with a radical rethink. We take difficult choices by choosing carefully and we recognise the cost by fueling faith. Third point, we recognise the cost by fueling faith. Uh, Ruth 1.16, second part. Wherever you go, I will go. Whatever, wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Let's just think about this for a second. Being a widow meant alienation, often, and even destitution. If you've been married and you're now a widow in Near Eastern times in those days, it was tough being a widow. Who was going to look after you? If you're a widow with the reputation of being barren, what is your opportunity for remarriage? Think about it for a second. There was no NHS. There was no pension scheme. There was no future support for you outside of your family. So if you were a widow and you were barren, what does that mean about your future? It means you couldn't have sons or daughters. And if you couldn't have sons and daughters, who's going to look after you in old age? Ruth, in theory, was not an attractive proposition. And yet she went with Naomi. She was a Mo- and on top of all that, she was a Moabite, Moabite woman. So she's from another culture, she's from a different society. She's got all these things against her, yet she makes this decision to go with Naomi back to Bethlehem. That's a hugely courageous decision. So if we're going to recognise the cost, it means we're going to have to fuel our faith. And that's exactly what Ruth did. That's exactly what Ruth did. She started to fuel the faith in her. And she was able to say, your God will be my God. Yahweh will be my God. Do you get what she's saying? That's huge. That's cross-cultural shift. You might be locked up in a cultural identity, but this woman had to switch cultural identities to follow what God was saying. And so often we get secure in our cultural backgrounds, but maybe God's saying, hang on a second, you've got to challenge everything about your life if you're going to really trust me with faith. You're going to have to ask everything about your life. Your family, you're going to have to challenge your your ethnic background, you're going to have to challenge your thinking in all sorts of different areas. Because when it comes to counting the cost, real faith means that you'll be obedient to what God says. And that's what the challenge is here for Ruth. She's making that decision. It's a huge decision of faith, trusting in the Israelite God who she's never met. She's only ever heard about him through Naomi. That's extraordinary, isn't it? What a huge amount of faith. As we move forward as a church this year, I believe God's going to fill not only this service, the second service tonight, there'll be a great turnout. There'll be a lot of people involved in this church this Sunday. A lot of people. This week we'll be praying. There may only be 20, 30, 40 people at the prayer meetings each night during the week. Hopefully as many as possible. But we just don't know what God is going to do this year. All we know is by faith we will challenge everything about who we are and be obedient to what God says we should do. And there will be people watching your lives and they'll be seeing God through you. You will be Naomi to a Ruth outside of BCC. Whether it's female or male. Men, most men look at what men do to be influenced by the kingdom of God. They don't just have ideas about theory. They look at who you really are. Naomi was, was looked at by Ruth. Men, who you are, what you do, has an incredible influence over other men. If you just say things, men are not interested in what you say. They're interested in what they see 
as a reality. You need to get your life to a place where your reality is something that's living and active in your world. Your understanding of who God is. is in other words, it's going to be costly. Man, your lives, if you're going to live by faith, it's going to cost. Don't think that just by coming to church on Sunday morning, it's going to make an iota of difference in terms of major directional change in your life. It won't. The cost of faith is big. And have you got the courage for it? I have. I've got the courage for it. You've got to ask yourself, how courageous am I? It's easy to come on Sunday morning. It's not easy sometimes to take steps in faith when God asks you to move in a direction that you don't necessarily want to go in. Even Ruth had to challenge herself. Uh, Ruth had to. Naomi, she had to confront her fears about her, her family, her community, going back after 10 or 15 or maybe more years. She's going back to her. Says, How would you feel going back to, you know, as a failure? I not only lost my husband, I lost my sons, had no grandchildren. I'm going back with virtually nothing and I'm in my 50s. Will I be rejected? There's a huge challenge. As we go forward, God doesn't make this easy. He makes it challenging. That's what faith is. You know, this week we've seen more stuff kick off spiritually in the life of the church this week than we've seen for quite a while. Why? Because I know that God is speaking to us as a church that he's going to make us stronger. It's going to make us, he's going to build us. And how do you get stronger and how does God build? It only comes through resistance. If you go to the gym, if you want to be pushing 10 kilos as, as a bench press, you can do that all your life because kids can do that. But if you want to get to 80, 90, 100 kilos, it's, it's going to hurt. You're going to tear a few muscles. You're going to, you got, you're going to feel the resistance. And if we're going to grow in, by faith and be spiritually strong, there's going to be resistance that we've got to overcome. And God will allow us to run into things that will create resistance for us. So we've got to decide now what we're going to do. Decide now in the prayer meeting, as we, the prayer meetings this week, as we step into this year, decide now that you're going to get involved in these things. Get these decisions, uh, this disciplines in place now because when we start to hit the tougher stuff, how are you going to feel? You know, when the weight is loaded up, are you going to be able to even push the thing? You know, that, that'll be the test. Excuse me, that'll be the test. In Luke 17, it says, in the ESV, I love this. Uh, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, interesting. But a lot of traditional translations talk about the size of a grain of mustard seed. And most of us have been Christians for a while. Think of these verses. If you had faith the size of a grain of mustard seeds. It says that in the New Living Translation, but in the ESV it's more accurate and it says, um, increase our faith, and the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed. There's a subtle difference there, but it's a world of difference. So often we think of faith being a size thing. It isn't a size thing. It's a substance thing. It's not size, it's substance. Faith is about substance, not size. But it doesn't take a lot with a lot. If you've got a lot of substance, then you don't need a lot of it because good substance makes a lot of difference. So it's not principally size, but I did some, a little bit of looking into it, mustard seeds and the anatomy, the, anal the analogy of the, the mustard seed. Um, a mustard seed is from the brassica plant family, which is like Brussels sprouts and broccoli and stuff like that. It's not just about being small. Uh, and we know mustard seeds can grow into plants that are upwards of three metres tall. They can get pretty big. So a small thing has the ability to grow a lot. So your faith this year has the ability to grow a huge amount as you take steps of faith. 
You may only have a tiny little bit of faith right now, but it can grow exponentially. And what's interesting about mustard plants, they are one of the most fascinating plants you'll ever come across. Um, they are prolific self-seeders. They, they produce seeds very, very quickly. The mustard plants grow quickly. They produce seeds within 30 to 60 days. There's different varieties. Um, did you know they're close to being indestructible, mustard seeds? I don't know if you knew that. Not only are they small, but they're easy to grow, and they, they, they grow in virtually any climate. That's why you've got mustard all around the world, because it grows all over the place in inhospitable places. It will grow in almost any season. So no matter what the season is, unless it's extremes of temperature, the mustard seed will grow. It will grow almost anywhere, and, it's, and it, it won't be destroyed. Even if you've got a mustard seed on a bit of old rock, it won't kill it off. And faith is like this. Faith is like this. It's got substance. It's drought resistant. Did you know it will grow in almost any sort of soil? A mustard seed. So faith can grow in almost any situation. Faith can, can stand much further than we think it can. It, it will grow in almost any environment. And what's more, it will grow fast. It will grow fast. The results of faith will produce results very, very quickly. It will grow fast. What does faith do? Well, mustard seeds are a, a, a taste enhancer. So your life will taste different <laughs> when you've got faith like a mustard seed. Um, not only is it drought resistant, most soils fast growing, the plant itself, almost all the plant has value. A mustard plant, everything it produces, everything that seed produces has value. You can eat all of it. And it has a lot of health properties as well. The mustard plant is a preservative. <laughs> Get that? Faith will preserve you. It's insect and disease resistant. Did you know that? I didn't realise this. But the mustard plant is an incredible plant. Um, so you've got something, when the Bible is making this analogy, it's about substance. With faith active, it will grow, multiply, protect, and actually it's got health properties as well. Relief from muscular pain, psoriasis, arthritis, ringworm, um, contact dermatitis, <laughs> breathing disorders. The mustard plants have proven benefits in cancer situations, diabetes, detoxification of the body. You know what? They, mustard plants even repel poisons. Did you know that? I didn't know this. So when the Bible saying have faith like a mustard seed, it says when you get faith active in your life, it starts to do all this stuff. That's what's behind all this. God's plan is to see stuff grow, protect, um, in, enrich your health, everything. Health properties, um, the poison repelling qualities. It exerts, um, it, it exerts um, therapeutic effects on the nerves, helps maintain cardiac health, promotes health, healthy skin and hair, lowers cholesterol, and is helpful for women in the menopause. <laughs> so there you go, guys. Anyway, um, you know, this is what, so what's in the word of God? Faith. Recognize the cost and fuel your faith. Imagine what could happen this week through the week of prayer and fasting. Get yourself faith equipped this week. If you're in the world's worst situation right now, by faith and by being obedient and drawing yourself into God's plan, everything can change. Everything can change and God's going to provision for it. And you know what's extraordinary about mustard seeds? They come in brown, black, yellow and white. It sounds like the human race if you want my honest view. And you know what the hottest mustard is? The black and the brown mustard. <laughs> and uh, anyway, enough about that. But uh, it's interesting. 
Um, who's doing keys this morning? Sh Shagan, where are you? Come and join me. We're going to close the meeting. Please stand with me.